This is a piece by a guy named Larry Taunton. Larry who? Never heard of her. What sort of a man is he? Pick from Bama. A man like any other, but more so. Well, I thought he was dead. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Let's light this candle. Welcome to the Larry Alex Taunton Show. I am Amy Beth Shaver. I'm Larry Alex Taunton. So uh, what have you been up to? Well, I have been in uh, South America again, and uh, it was a very good trip. Uh, this time I wasn't sick and uh, was able to get a, quite a few things done and have a little bit of fun at the same time. So what are some of your favorite things you do when you're there? Um, well, I, I have, I'm kind of pushing along a couple of Christian initiatives there that interest me quite a lot. I'm also in enjoying, you know, I'm as a writer, you're always looking for stimulation. You're always looking for things that feed you. It's funny. I was reading a novel. I've been reading winds of war by (laughs) Herman woke. And one of his characters, uh, lives in, he's a writer and he lives in, uh, um, Italy and the war is coming and he, he's faced with having to move back to the United States. And he says, but I'll end up in some place like New Mexico, which is a cultural void, and it will be it'll be um, a suicide for my writing. You know, so uh, you know, I I like the stimulation it gives me, the perspective it gives me, getting outside of your own context and seeing what other people are dealing with. That's um, that's very useful. But on this particular trip, I uh, something I really loved and don't as a rule get to do, but we went sailing Oh, and uh, it was a beautiful evening and a beautiful boat. And uh, that was great. Where did y'all sail? Uh, just off of the Colombian coast, okay. just off of Cartagena. Okay. And, um, and it was, uh, you know, it was a gorgeous evening. Um, Columbia, uh, Columbia has a, is, is actually an enormous country. And, um, it's the only country in South America that is in both the Atlantic and the Pacific. It's, it's on, uh, it's on both sides of, uh, of South America and the mountains. It's quite cold, but down on the coast, it's, it's consistently warm, hot, <laughs> but you get out in a, you know, a, a sailboat and you've got a nice breeze. And so it wasn't hot as uh, Cartagena usually is and, uh, beautiful. Yeah, I liked it very much. Do you have certain places that you go every time you go to Columbia? Like I, I know, and, and I'm excited because this show today really will dive into not only what makes America great, uh, because it's popular to hate her right now, but also travel. Yeah, And, and travel <clears throat> is something that people are doing more and more of. But as someone who travels regularly... Do you have places that you think I can't wait to go here? Yes. Yeah, and and um and more than the average bear. I have uh a lot of favorite places in Paris and London and Rome and in Moscow and uh in Hong Kong in uh various parts of South America. Places where I've been a lot um uh, where I have restaurants or a you know a coffee shop that I like or a hotel staff that I've gotten to know, friends uh, that I look forward to seeing for sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. I can't wait to hear about that. It's going to be fantastic. Um, okay. So I have news. 
I would like everyone to know that I am now a grandmother. (laughs) And you and your wife uh, prepared me well for that. Uh, It is spectacular. She is very tiny and can't do anything except sleep and eat. But... Being a grandparent is spectacular. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's fun. I like what Lori just said just a few minutes ago. I I don't know that I'd ever heard this before, but if you, oh, how did she put it? If you raise your children, yes, right, you get to spoil the grand. How, how did she put that? If you get to, if you raise your children right, you get to enjoy them and spoil them. But if you spoil your children, you will raise your grandchildren. You'll have to raise your grandchildren. And um, so three cups of coffee. You know. There you go. So you you've raised your children, and um, or in the process, you you still have uh, you know children at home, but um, you're now in that place where you're going to get to spoil um, your grandchildren, and that's uh, that's a lot of fun because when they begin to misbehave, you just send them back to their parents and let them deal with that. But it was very funny because recently I took Caroline, who's my you know, we have two grandchildren, um, both granddaughters, and Caroline is eight, and um, uh, Elizabeth is one. So Elizabeth is, you know, in that that stage that's not you, you can't really engage her, um, but Caroline is very much, and um, and she's very disciplined. She's she's um, very much a rule follower, and uh, I took her to. Uh, you know, out for ice cream. And she said, my dad said, I can't have eggs. And I said, yes, I know. But I said, you can. <laughs> and, uh, and so As you can. As all grandfathers should do. Yeah, I said, you can. And um, so I get her this enormous ice cream. It's a hot day. Well done, sir. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, and it's melting and it's all over her face. And uh, I thought, you know, this is just great. This is wonderful. She can enjoy this. And when she's on the sugar high, I can send her back home. Well, it's it's kind of perfect. <laughs> exactly. It is God's gift. <laughs> and now I understand, by the way, my dad used to do this. You yes. know, he used to do this to my children. He would he would buy every kind of sugar snack you could think of. <laughs> And then he, he would he would give it to them and then send them back to us. And I thought, now I get to be that guy. Yes. I, so you are about to be that. I'm very excited. Chris is most excited about that because I remember going for ice cream with my grandparents and my parents trying to tell me that we could only have vanilla because that wouldn't actually ruin your clothes. And of yeah. course, he let me get ice cream, uh, chocolate <laughs> with sprinkles. And I, you know, I already loved him, but I loved him even more after that. So there you go. Yeah, we're excited. We're excited. We've got big plans, even though the child is very tiny. Uh, I, have, I have plans. You know, it, it reminds me, my, uh, my father-in-law would take my boys out and they would come home from like Pancake, you know, house oh, my or, word. or one of those places they would come back and I would discover like, hey, Christopher, what did you have? He'd say, I had chocolate covered pancakes with a Coke. <laughs> And you're going, what? It's just one of those ways. With marshmallows and whipped cream on top. Sugar with more sugar. It's kind of like the movie Elf where he's just sugaring himself up. (laughs) This is exactly what they do. Yeah, I look forward to doing that. And in a little way, they're kind of goading you just a little bit. Exactly. I think, okay, well. You will get to do that now. I'm, uh, you know what? I'm overly excited. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, let's jump right into it today. And uh, we move to a fairly serious ABS moment, the Amy Beth Shaver automatic braking system moment of the show. What is on your mind today? 
It's actually something that you brought up, but I had been following your tweets, and that is the hiring of 87,000 IRS agents. Yeah. What in the actual world, and what in the actual world do they mean that you need to be prepared to use deadly force? Oh, and carry a firearm. Yeah, read that. Oh, you have that. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. I do. I, of course, turn this my phone off. This is from the IRS website. Yeah, this is from the IRS this is, website. They're, they're hiring, and they're saying these are the requirements, job requirements, to work for the IRS. Read, read for us what those are. Well, one of them is, of course, oh, here we go. I have it saved. Let me go to your page. Um, I read those and I thought, am, am I reading things? I mean, yeah. look, am I seeing yeah. things? 87,000, 87, more than doubles the size of the IRS. And I have to say this while you find that, that in uh, 2018, the IRS announced that they were, they were, um, they were cutting jobs. They were cutting the size of the IRS by 18,000 employees because they no longer needed as many agents because um, uh, of um, electronically mm -hmm. filed right. um, uh, uh, tax returns. And so there, there, was, there was less need for, for people to actually do the paperwork. Now, all of a sudden, with Biden, it's being it's being more than doubled. And what are the requirements for this? Okay, adhere to the highest standards of conduct. Okay, especially in maintaining honesty and integrity. Work a minimum of fifty hours per week. So far, so good. I mean, you know, okay. Be all a good right. guy be, and uh, you know, be ready to work. Okay, continue. Okay. Uh, but it may include irregular hours and okay. be on call. On okay. call, all of us can relate seven. to this so far. I understand, including holidays and Although weekends. Although that yes. does strike you as a little odd for IRS, IRS we are talking accountants. About you don't think bean quite counters? Like that. Really? Okay, yeah. this is very intense. This is a new IRS. Maintain a level of fitness necessary to effectively respond to life-threatening situations on the job. Now, here's our first clue that this is strange. Listen, and as a, a wife of a physician, let me tell you from someone who rails about fitness and health constantly, um, there is a positive here. And that is that we have a very unhealthy culture. So we can be assured that these 87,000 people that have been hired are probably not at fitness level yeah. necessary. So, but now they're like saying a, we want jacked IRS We agents. don't care. Yeah, we want jacked IRS agents. up, jacked. Just ready to go. The, uh, the, the, the bullet head uh, haircut. No problem. Let's get right on that. Um, and here's, here's the part that sent my heart into outer space. Carry a firearm and be willing to use deadly force if necessary. So this is the new, what I call, not the new IRS, I call it the new Waffen IRS. This is uh, this is sounding like a Gestapo. I mean, they there's nothing in here that says you need to have had accounting, mathematics, um, are effective in the use of a calculator. Right. No, you need to be prepared to be trained in the use of a firearm, use of deadly force yes. in the new Waffen IRS. This is shocking. Shocking stuff, doubling the size of the IRS. And I will bet money that they will be given, and perhaps in some kind of coded language, they will be given a very clear directive to go after white people mm -hmm. and after conservative groups. Yes. That's what they're doing. 
And um, and this comes on the heels. We are in a major recession. Although they've, did you see that they've redefined the they word have. recession? I love it. I mean, you never know what word they're going to come up yep. with that day, but they redefined it. Yep. It redefined man, yep. redefined woman. Yep. Now we're talking about redefining um, what a recession is, but we're in a recession, whatever language they want to use or however they want to redefine it. We are clearly in a recession. So what do they do? They pass a massive tax increase. They're sending uh, billions more um, to Ukraine, and um, which here's another thing. I wonder if you saw this, but ABC News, God bless them for actually doing some reporting. ABC News put out a story and then, of course, as they all do, they didn't just put it out on their website. They tweeted it. You know, they said, hey, um, you know, read our story. And the story, the headline was that only 30% of America's aid is actually reaching where it's directed, you know, that it's actually reaching the front lines in Ukraine. So of the billions that have been sent there, that only 30% is reaching its goal. Two days later... ABC issues a retraction and says, we're so sorry, we're deleting the tweet. Uh. We have been informed by the State Department that we were wrong, that it is actually going where it's supposed to be going. So, hey, you know, mea culpa, we delete the tweet. And I thought, it is shocking to me. They, 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 put, they stated what is almost certainly true, that money is going into um, Swiss bank accounts of these oligarchs of World Economic Forum types of undoubtedly corrupt American mm -hmm. politicians. They report on that, but then they say, oh, you know what? We're going to delete that article. We're going to delete the tweet, which they did. So, um, but it's not enough. We just keep sending billions overseas and we have an, an enormous tax increase, and now we're coming after the middle class with 87,000 new IRS agents who are not bringing their calculators, they're bringing sidearms. And, and not only are they bringing their sidearms, but the last bullet point that you had tweeted out was that they've got to be able to participate in arrest, execution of search warrants, and other dangerous assignments. Yep. This is absolutely unbelievable. Uh, I was sick and with grandbaby last week, not together, but did a deep dive on communism and realized that all that you have said and taught on and expressed so very well is happening right before our eyes. And I hope that people are paying attention because this is quite nefarious. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm interested to find out what people will do in response. Will they buy more firearms to keep yeah. at home? Um, well, if you didn't think you needed an AR-15, you, you, AR you might think you need it now. And and see, the def defund the, the police, that was never about really getting rid of police. Right. What it's about is purging the police of, of conservative elements, of, of um, local police forces that are sympathetic with local sensibilities. Mm. Um, you know, a police officer who lives in your neighborhood and who uh, sends his kids to the same schools and who shares your values. They want to they, they want to get rid of that and replace it with a new national 
um, police force. And it seems that the IRS may be where they're planning on doing it, um, creating it there rather than, you know, maybe they thought, and I'm just speculating here, if we announce the um, establishment of a new police force, well, that's going to get pretty heavy pushback. But if we use an existing agency and disguise it mm -hmm. as we're hiring them for the purpose of doing accounting, you know, or something like this, then um, then maybe we can get away with it. I, it's pretty shocking. I'm told that the IRS, I haven't actually looked, but I am told that the IRS has since taken this off of their website. Well, I would hope so. Yeah. Because they've they, no, they been found out. Yeah, they've been found out, but I'm sure they haven't actually changed the policy. They're just now no longer stating it um, openly, but... I think this is a pretty good ABS moment because I think this is a, a shocking development that's happening in our country. And I think combine that with the raid on Mar-a-Lago and you have Americans that are very attentive <clears throat> to what is going on and what will happen this next election cycle. Because if we don't do something about it, we are, we're, it's, we're done. Well, you know, something I want to say to people as they're listening is that this isn't about Donald Trump, you know, that if you think that this is, uh, whether or not you voted for him, whether or not you liked him, um, the reality is well, any politician, and I, I would say this of, 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 a, of a Democrat as well as a Republican, when we're talking about someone that there has been one false narrative after another. I mean, the the Russia collusion narrative has has been demonstrated to be false in spades. Um, the uh, January six, um, you know, fiasco is an embarrassment to this country because it is a uh, what they're doing is it's a show trial of an old Stalinist style. You have essentially the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus and people thrown into prison mm. who've done nothing. Right. They've done nothing. So now a, a raid on the home of the former president of the United States, it, it's, it's so obviously politically motivated that it makes us look like a banana republic. It does. And it's, it's a national embarrassment what's happening there. And I think that Democrats are realizing that perhaps they've gone too far this time, although they've, you know, they've been going too far, you know, <laughs> for years, and it seems they've gotten away with it. But um, you are having a response overseas as well as domestically um, where people are kind of going, whoa, this, is, yes. uh, this feels uh, really over the top. And the concern I think you'd have to have is um, the planting of evidence. I mean, do you remember Dan Rather uh, having this fabricated... Yes. Um, um, document that's that was meant to smear George W. Bush mm -hmm. that he was trying to avoid um, you know serving in the military some years ago and the whole thing was demonstrated to be um, utterly false well now and then of course the uh, the Russia collusion you know the dossier which was false uh, put together by the Hillary Clinton campaign and then you have the Obama uh, and and Hillary uh, you know working together and eavesdropping on the Trump campaign. Now you have this and you're kind of going, again, whether or not you care anything about Donald Trump, the point is that you should care about, you should care about the rule of law. That's you right. should care about 
the proper application of the rule of law. You should care about our, our constitution. And uh, these things matter. And um, uh, it's quite shocking where we see some of this stuff going. It really, really is shocking. And a shameless plug, um, you know, we did that show on Marxism a, a few shows ago. So if you haven't heard that or you haven't watched it, go back, because if you watch it or listen to it with new ears and new eyes based on what's just happened in the last couple of weeks, the dots will begin to be connected for you everywhere you look. Uh, so I think that was extremely timely. Chris ended up buying Richard Wormbrand's uh, testimony and uh, his book. Fabulous. So, um, you know, we watched a few things about communism, but I, it, this is, it's, a, it's terrifying, but we're equipped if you're paying attention. We're in the early stages of it. You, you really need to know what's going on right now so that then you can educate and empower other people so that we can take the necessary steps to protect ourselves, protect our families, and, and keep that rule of law that makes America, America. But it's also a perfect jumping off point, and we'll pause right here and come back because we want to talk about what makes America great. We want to talk about the rule of law that is not appreciated or allowed in other countries. So Stay tuned. We will be right back and we'll talk about what makes America so great. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Larry is my favorite player. Welcome back. Okay, Larry. So today our conversation is based off of your excellent book, Around the World in More Than 80 Days. What set you on this journey? You know, it's... um it's it's very interesting, Amy Beth. I decided to write around the world in more than 80 days um, because at the time um, that I started this, which was in 2016, I think, it, you were really starting to hear all the America haters. Mm. And I'd already done, I'd probably at that point in my life probably been to 40 countries, let's yeah. say. So I'd already done tons of travel. I could have, I suppose, probably could have written this book without leaving home. Right. Um, at that point, but I thought, you know, let's, let's enlighten people as to what the rest of the world is like, because the data says that only 31% of Americans uh, have ever left the country. And my, my guess is that most of them have been on a, you know, a honeymoon cruise in the Caribbean. They got drunk in Tijuana, maybe, maybe went on a fishing trip to Canada. Um, others, if they've left the country and they've gone to Europe, almost always it's Paris or London. And then maybe, you know, to a Rome or something like that, possibly a mission trip. But that pretty much is it. And the other 69% haven't left the country at all. So my feeling was so many Americans, they are dependent upon what media tells them about the rest of the world. And I think that the media is by and large lying about the rest of the world. And so we're always being told how awful America is, what the opinion of the French is about America, what the opinion of the Chinese is about America, what they're saying about America in Germany. And, uh, and I think, hold on just a second here. Um, <laughs> America is the greatest country in the world, and the world knows it. They're all trying to come here. Why do you think they're flooding across our southern border? So I thought it would be useful to go around the world, try to draw people in with this story of adventure. It was a very adventuresome you know, 
uh, a series of trips. I actually ended up circumnavigating the globe three times in order to to uh, to write this book, but um, also to educate you as we go along. You know, I I try to write books that aren't just you know academic, but are telling you something very important through story that you find compelling. Yeah, which by the way, you do very well. Thank you very much. So, where did you guys start? We started uh, in Birmingham um, on the set of a radio show, and then we ended up back on day 80 um, on the set of that same radio show. But yeah, we started in Birmingham, and of course, anybody who lives in Birmingham knows that if you're flying internationally, you got to go through Atlanta first. So we went um, Birmingham, Atlanta um, to L.A., and L.A. became our jumping-off point okay. to going to New Zealand. So we started in New Zealand, and uh, and kind of you, you you're not exactly you know going in a straight line around the right. world. You're sort of zigzag. Sometimes you're coming back. the The order of the travel isn't exactly what it is in the book, and that was they're arranged mostly chronologically, but at times it was necessary to sort of alter that just a little bit because partially I want to, kind of the way the Gospels work, by the way, and I'm not suggesting my book is a Gospel. Rather, (laughs) what I mean by that is that you take the book of John, for instance, and it's arranged arranged broadly chronologically, but there's also a logical grouping Mm -hmm. of stories. And so using something like, like that as a model, that's kind of the way we arranged um, the uh, the travel. Okay, so two questions. Number one, I want to define a term that you used, and I really liked the way that you set this up, and that is a traveler's fallacy. Yeah. Tell me what you mean by that. Now, the traveler's fallacy, I felt like I needed to coin a term that'd just be easy as I go through the book that people would know what I'm referring to having to ex- rather than having to explain it all the time. The traveler's fallacy goes like this. I will bump into people who will say, gosh, I I love Vietnam. I had such a great time. I could live there. And I say, let me guess. You stayed in the four seasons, you know, in Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City, as it's called now. Yes, yes, I did. Well, of course you had a great time. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, France is wonderful. I, I, let me guess. You've been to Paris and you stayed at the Peninsula Hotel on the Champs Elysees. Of course, it was, it was wonderful. Um, that's the traveler's fallacy. You visit Jamaica on, uh, you know, a princess, you know, cruise mm-hmm. ship, and you assume that's real life, but it isn't. And so. The traveler's fallacy is mistaking your vacation with the reality of the country that you're visiting because that's not the way the average Frenchman lives. It's not the way the average Vietnamese lives. It's not the way the average Jamaican lives. And so um, I'm, I'm, I want to, to prepare the reader to understand your understanding of what France is based on your honeymoon in Paris isn't reality. I think that's excellent because we've experienced the same. We've t- we we took our children starting at a very early age. And yeah, you've done quite a bit of travel yourself. I have, and thankfully, uh, my parents allowed us to travel also from a very early age. Our first trip was Canada and then the Congo. 
Um, but they never shied away. I was 12. Um, Molly, our youngest child, who's now 15, was six or seven the first time we took her to Ecuador. And I think that was the time that I really appreciated that whole idea yeah. of this traveler's fallacy that you're peeling back the layers of the onion. You're landing in this glamorous airport and you're thinking, wow, this is much prettier than my airport. And wow, there's good food here. And oh, look at the gift shop. And then you get out and you're like, oh, this is very different. Yeah. And I think it's very important to see how people live because when you understand how people live, you can appreciate where we live, but you can also ex- appreciate their experience because it is very often very different and it's not at all glamorous. It's very gritty. Um, but I really appreciated the way that you set that up. So we will get to why America is great, but let me also say that each time that we've landed in the US of A and gone through customs, there is a giant exhale. Thank you, God, that this is where we are. I appreciate traveling, but I'm thankful that we are in America and enjoy the freedoms that we do. So before we dive into talking about the Kiwis, and then I have several countries that I've picked out because I've read this book and I enjoyed it very much. Um, Practically speaking, when you are traveling at least 17 hours um, from Los Angeles, right? Yeah. Um, Because you're talking at least a four-hour trip cross-country to LA, and then another at least 17 hours. How do you plan your trips? Do you plan that you will arrive the following day so that you are on their time schedule when you arrive? Is that how you like to plan, Um, practically speaking? You know... um Practically speaking, there's lots of little things that I do depending on how. I actually prefer a longer haul hmm. than a short haul, and that's okay. because you can really stretch out and you can rest and this sort of thing. But I, you know, used to, um, you know, air travel was kind of a big deal. You dressed up. My mom required me to dress up as yes. a child to fly. It was like it was like Sunday. It was like Sunday. Yeah. You, um, you know, I can recall many a time traveling where I'm. You know, when I'm young, like as a teenager, wearing a you know coat and tie type of thing. These days, uh, I don't. I just say to myself, I'm not going to see these people in the airport ever again. I practically wear pajamas to the airport. I get on the plane. I take my shoes off. I put them in the overhead bin. I put on um, socks. Um, I settle in. I have noise canceling headphones. I mean, people will look and go, this guy's done this before. Mm-hmm. He he knows what he's yes. doing here. I've thought all of that out pretty carefully. Um, if I'm able to sleep, I sleep for me is a major issue. Um, but if I'm able to, or at least rest just um, just a little bit. And, um, and then, you know, I have lots of little things that I pack. Um, if, if you don't have noise-canceling headphones, you know, just... Um, uh, some earplugs will help. Noise, noise is a major part of fatigue, and if you're able to get on a plane and just you know uh, uh, cut off all the the sound of crying babies and uh, meet people listening to music or or watching movies or the hum mm-hmm. of the uh, of the engines, it, you can you kind of slip into your own world when you close your eyes. And that will save on you know your fatigue in a very very big way. But I, I have lots of little things that I've learned, and in the book I lay out some tips mm-hmm. about stuff like that. Um, so speaking of sleep, quickly, melatonin or no? No, I, well I've never really used it. Um, Lori's tried to get me to use it, and 
I just haven't, so I can't speak to its effectiveness. I'm, I, I never take melatonin, but my kids will take. Emmy traveled quite a bit, and she would take melatonin for her long flights. Um, okay, last question before we talk about the country, because who doesn't want to be a Kiwi? Um, favorite seat on the plane? Well, I'm tall, and uh, as such, I go for bulkhead Exit row, and I think that you know if you have anybody traveling with you under the age of sixteen that can't sit in the exit row seat, you have to be able-bodied um, to sit there, which I am barely. And so <laughs> I go exit row, bulkhead, um, our favorite seats, and I've accumulated enough miles that I can uh, I can fly business class, and that that's especially post-accident, Larry, that makes a big, big difference. Yes. And if I'm flying, um, you know, a long-haul flight, and in Asia, by the way, everything is long-haul. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at the map and it doesn't look like it's that that long. But in, in Asia, we, we seldom had a flight that was less than nine hours. Mm. And uh, um, so having that makes a huge, huge difference. And I've had a donor that has given me miles. Wow. Um, millions of miles. And the result of that has been that that I just I'm just able to to fly in business class. And that that has changed my life. <laughs> Yes. I, I can appreciate that, not as a tall person, but my my husband. Your and husband's son, very tall, six nine and six ten. Yep, and son. And the girls are six feet, so I'm the bonus. Um, but that business, we we the last time we flew, we flew business and class. See, I'm six to three, not, not near their height, but at six three, somebody's uh, um, in coach class economy. Somebody's laying a seat back on oh, me, and I love. just push them forward, you and know. I say, "Look, you can't do that. You are my knees are already in the back of um, of, of your seat." I'm also a guy that um, if I'm I'm in economy class, I look to see who's behind me. Is this a you know a tiny woman? Um, is there no one back there? Or I will ask, "Do you mm-hmm. you know do mm-hmm. I have room to come back there?" I don't just you know, put my, put my seat back. That's so utterly thoughtless, but in business class, you can do that. And I have to throw this in, by the way, on one occasion, I, um, uh, someone was flying me to, um, to London for an engagement in London and they put me in first class. Oh, have you ever seen first class? Oh, it's just not real. You, you, it's not real. If, if the people in economy, which was what I, you know, had generally flown, knew what was going on up in first class, they would lead a Spartacan rebellion to take over that part of the plane. It was amazing. It's the one time in my life, and this was when Virgin Airlines oh, was something really, really special. Yes, it isn't anymore, but it was. This is you know more than a decade ago. And uh, I want to say there were like maybe ten seats, and this was a double decker. You know, oh, so you took yes. the you took the spiral staircase to go up into the special area, and there's there's it's almost like each person has their own stewardess. I guess you're not allowed to say that anymore, flight attendant. But he said that, and, and it's uh, fine <laughs> because they are. And there's your own little food bar and uh, places to sit, and somebody it's comes magical. and makes your somebody makes your bed. <laughs> you're going really. <laughs> Wow. But this was somebody who wanted to communicate to me, I, this is how much I value you. And I want you to enjoy this flight to, you know, to London. And boy, did I, you know, when we're landing, I'm like, is this over? 
Is it over? <laughs> Can we not just keep going? <laughs> That's exactly. I uh, my first double decker, and this airline's not around, is Sabina. We flew that okay, yeah. into Belgium and then over to Africa. And as a child, what was this, I Sabina re- is that is that an Austrian airline? That, is that was, what it was either Austrian or I can't remember, but they wore the hats yeah, yeah. and the gloves, and, and it was just. Well, it's unbe- now the Asian airlines or like Air Emirates? An unbelievable experience because yeah. you think, how are they going to get off the ground? Because there's like a story up there and there's all these people, but air travel is one of our most favorite things because there's just that romance of the journey. There's that expectation that you have that whether or not the trip lives up to it, um, it's just, it's just great time (laughs) with your family, but also looking in first class, even these days is uh, my, my cousin just sent a picture of of a trip they took a couple of years ago. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is just, this is unreal. Well, I've only but, done it once. Only unreal. once. I think they've only but done it once. But if somebody wants to send wow. me somewhere on first class again, I will I will gladly go. Look, we were in business class, which was exquisite enough on its own because, you know, tall people, long legs. Thank you, God, for that section. Yeah, that. But they brought one of the children. Um, they ran out of food in business class, and I thought the plates were really nice. Well, then they bring out the china from first class yeah. because they ran out of pasta. So one of the children received... It on a you know this beautiful platter with the silverware and I'm like what is going on up there yeah. and so now they're spoiled forever so it's fine. there you go it's fine however so do you want to take a break and go to or we or we don't we don't have to we've got a few more minutes let's take a break and when we come back we're going to we're going to jump country by country and I've got a couple places that I'd really like for you to talk to us about it, help us understand what we don't understand, dig deep, and then get back around to why America's so great. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Welcome back. Now, at the end of our conversation today, we're going to get to something, but it really is a theme of your book, and that is the hope of the gospel, the effect of the gospel on a country. And I really appreciate that theme, especially in today's culture, how profound the Bible affects the people who actually live out what those words say and what that means. And so I look forward to getting to that conversation at the end, but thank you for that theme um, with your book because it's fantastic. And if you haven't bought it, buy it. It's right here. It is around the world in more than 80 days. But right now, we're going to jump to New Zealand. Tell us about it. Yeah, New Zealand um, is, uh, I'm trying to remember if that's the first country we went to, but um, uh, we we left from Los Angeles. We were in Brisbane um, briefly, and then we went uh, on to um, to Auckland, New Zealand, which is the Mm -hmm. North Island. You know, Lord of the Rings was filmed on the South Island. And uh, New Zealand is, um, I think I call it Seattle North, or excuse me, um, Seattle South, um, because it's, it's, it is extremely liberal. Um, it's, it's, you know, everywhere you turned, you were faced with, and this was before, you know, we were seeing all the Pride Month stuff that we're seeing here. We were seeing it there in a very big way, you know, the perversion of God's symbol of the rainbow, God's promise to man. Uh, you know, the LGBTQ agenda being pushed in a very big way. I didn't like any of that. And in that sense, I didn't enjoy New Zealand. <clears throat> that said, um, you know, we're um, driving up and down the coast in a Land Rover Defender and 
going right out onto the beaches and so on, which were gorgeous. You know, so is New Zealand a beautiful place? Yes. Is it a place worth visiting? Yes. But uh, it was disappointing to see uh, how uh, how much um, how far gone the country was mm. was in terms of a PC agenda. Mm. That is um, disturbing to hear, but then we also see that fleshed out in what happened to them during COVID yes. and the draconian measures yes, that they took. for sure. Um, you know, it really makes you want to step back and go, wait, hold on a second here. Yeah. Um, but another country that you talked about that I, I found fascinating, especially in light of what's happening with China right now, is Hong Kong. Yeah. And that one country, two systems, and I guess no one's going to be surprised that you may or may not have been banned from China. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about that. It's a fascinating story. Yeah. Um, Hong Kong, first of all, Hong Kong's kind of the Atlanta of Asia, meaning, <laughs> meaning we found ourselves in Hong Kong again and again and again because it was a hub to jumping off to different parts of Asia. And if there was any part of the book that I could change now, it would be that part of the book because since I wrote it, China has swallowed, you know, Hong Kong. And that to me is very sad. Hong Kong on the one hand, and I, I should should preface these remarks by saying I'm very much a southerner. I'm I'm used to wide open spaces and hills and trees and and um, beautiful sunsets and being able to drive everywhere that I want to go. And uh, Hong Kong is the exact opposite of all of that. It is um, seven times more densely populated than New York. It's a very vertical city. Um, it is, um, it is the, the kind of city that is um, full of noise and dripping. You know, the ladies carry uh, um, uh, umbrellas because of the dripping air conditioners, you know, onto the sidewalks. Really? Yes, you think, well, they, they must know something I don't about rain coming. No, it's because the, um, you know, the, the tubes that are that are dumping out the condensation, uh, it's just all over the sidewalk. So the sidewalks are constantly wet, and they're you know carrying umbrellas because of it. And um, it's uh, it's noisy. It's it's difficult to get around anywhere as a pedestrian. New York is actually not that difficult to navigate as a pedestrian. New York City, Manhattan, but. Hong Kong is, you know, almost impossible. And yet there's something I love about Hong Kong or did. And that was the, the impulse of freedom that, that was there. Um, the, the vibrant Christian community that you would engage there, the anti-communist fervor that was there. These were all things that I loved about Hong Kong and I loved about the Chinese. Now, as for me, being banned from China, um, mainland um, China, I was um, there in 2010 as part of a business delegation, and uh, I was at the University of Peking um, listening to an economist, mm. uh, a Chinese economist. And, it, and different from now, in 2010, China appeared to be moving towards more and more openness. And the Chinese appeared to be speaking more frankly about their history, which signaled me that I could be more honest um, about um, China's history. And uh, anyway, at some point during his lecture, he said that, that um, there were excesses under Mao in the implementation of certain ec economic policies and programs. And uh, this irritated me hugely because... Um, you know, Mao killed between 40 and 70 million of his own people. 
And so I said, you know, excuse me just a moment. Um, and I said exactly that. Excesses, I, I think that's a bit of an understatement. Mao killed, you know, almost 70 million of his own people. And the economist looked absolutely panicked when I said that. You could have heard a pin drop in that lecture hall, in that classroom. And I'm in there with a lot of Chinese students, uh, a couple of whom had been my tour guides, you know, around mm -hmm. the university, very friendly. Uh, they literally backed away from me. And uh, the economist said nothing. He acted like I hadn't said anything. And he looked towards both doors to see if anybody was coming in. And then he went on without saying a word. And um, my hosts, you know, stayed away from me at that point. And, um, and then later I learned when I was doing this project, I was going to go back to China and you don't have to get a visa. And it came back from the uh, the Chinese consulate saying that I would have to, um, they wouldn't grant me a visa unless I signed a document stating that I would write nothing negative about China. And, um, you know, I had friends say, well, you should just sign it. And then when you leave, say whatever you want. I was like, no, mm. I will get into China and they will discover heroin, you know, in my bag. Or I've wondered this actually about Mar-a-Lago, how much, how much planted evidence are they going yeah. to have, you know, found in, uh, in, in Mar-a-Lago. But anyway, um, I thought, no, I'm going to trash China. I don't have to go back to include China in the book. I've already been to China. I've already been to Beijing. I've already been to Shanghai. And uh, so I can write about uh, that country anyway. Now, I have, they, they never stated why I was banned. Um, but I think of that lecture as being possibly the moment. Uh, a friend of mine who does a lot of business in China says he thinks it's that combined with the fact that I was engaging with a lot of Christians in that country. And he says, almost certainly you were followed, um, that they were mm -hmm. very aware of where you were and what wow. you were doing. And that probably is true. Um, and, um, and whatever the reason, I'm not allowed to go back. And frankly, I'm, I don't want to. I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I was banned from China. Um, I don't like China. I make a differ I differentiate between the Chinese government, a lot of the Chinese people who were exceedingly gracious and friendly and fascinating shanghai will make any shanghai makes any american city any western city that you care to name look third world really yeah i'm not kidding shanghai at least the downtown area i mean china is a third world country but the major metropolitan centers are you know look mostly like any one of ours minus the you know, um, some some differences in in uh, architecture and the the Chinese script. You know mm -hmm. that you see all over the buildings. But Shanghai is hyper modern, hyper modern. Really, um, and the service in China is extraordinary. But again, I would point out to people because I've talked to journalists who will say, "Man, I love China." I, it, it's a it's not communist. It's fascist. It's it's hyper capitalistic. And it is com it's combining a a um, a capitalist economy with a totalitarian state, and when you're in a country like that, provided you don't fall afoul of the regime, it feels wonderful. And 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 what I mean by that is, uh, let's take for instance a a problem that we have in uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, where where we live. 
that's Highway 280. For probably the whole of my life, Highway 280 has been a source of um, of tension in the the city of Birmingham because the traffic is awful. There's never been any improvements. There's constant town halls and debates and politicians saying they're going to solve that problem. The Chinese would have solved it a long time ago, and that's because what they would do is throw 100,000 workers at it, make it six lanes wider, and demolish everything in its path. Now, if your house is not along 280, you go, this is great. I save 30 minutes a day. I have practically my own lane. But that's the way fascism works. There's no regard for the rights of the individual. There's no individualism, uh, communism as well. And the um, civil liberties simply don't exist. And this is, you know, our system is more clumsy Uh, but it is a system that has traditionally, obviously this is changing, respected the rights of individuals. And that's because we believe, this is again Christian influence, we believe that human beings are made in the image of God. And we believe that they have rights that are, that are not given by government, but are given by God. Mm-hmm. The Chinese don't believe that. So let's travel then from China to Japan. Japan, um, Japan, as I say, is great for the Japanese. Um, and I say that with respect. Um, the, the Japanese do not apologize for the fact that their immigration policy is extremely strict. They are a monocultural nation, monoethnic. Um, I, I want to say that, that Japan is uh, in excess of 98% their population 98% ethnic Japanese. So they allow almost no immigration. And they don't apologize for that. And so when I, as American, go there and discover very few people speak English or that maybe I don't like this, I don't like that, I respect the fact that the Japanese have not tried to alter their country to accommodate me right, or people like me. Except they make delicious pastries. <laughs> I discovered that as a 16-year-old. Yes, I did. Did you go to Japan? Yes, I did. Okay. Japan and the Philippines. Okay. Um, but I agree with you. And I think that that is a lesson that we could learn, is they're proudly who they are. Yeah. And we there's a good swath of America that feels that way. Yeah. But if our government could remember, how about you take a pointer? I think that's an excellent point. Yeah. They, the Japanese are very proud of their country. Um, you know, you will have toilet seats that, um, that freshen the air, that play music, that, that are warm, that are warm, um, that do all kinds of interesting things. Um, and, and this, the, in your hotel, every hotel has these, these, um, these unique toilet seats, which are very funny, <laughs> but I, uh, I enjoyed Japan. Uh, cleanliness was extraordinary. The service was extraordinary, extremely expensive mm-hmm. country. Um, but I, I did enjoy that. Also went um, to a Japanese, uh, you know, one of the Japanese islands, and that is Okinawa. Mm. And, uh, you know, at least it's controlled, um, governed by the Japanese. And uh, that was interesting because we went to Hacksaw Ridge, you know. Oh, wow. Made famous, made famous by um, uh, the United States military, but made famous in the modern era by Mel Gibson's movie, you know, um, uh, Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, very powerful to go there, um, fascinating. But yeah, uh, Japan was interesting. So what about Vietnam? 
And by the way, yes, the gospel again, when we're talking about Japan, Japan is a country that hasn't been touched by grace because the suicide rates in Japan are exceedingly high because if you've brought shame to your family or Chris's business is, is failing, he's expected to commit suicide. And um, the absence of grace, the, 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 um, the burden of law in Japan is, uh, is extraordinary. But yeah, I'm sorry, what country did you mention? Uh, Vietnam. Vietnam. Vietnam surprised me because the Vietnamese love Americans. Um, they're very friendly. I thought, you know, the moment I show up with my U.S. passport, you know, they're, they're going to bring up, you know, My Lai or uh, the Vietnam War, something like that. Not at all. Uh, the Vietnamese, um, the interesting people and interesting history. I try to learn a little bit of um, of the language in any country I go into, uh, tonal languages, hopeless. I can do none of that. So I, I don't even try in, uh, in, in those countries, um, where we were, but, um, but I, I did enjoy that. And I, uh, I took, uh, um, I, I, I went by speedboat, you know, up the, uh, the Saigon river, um, to, um, the, what are they called? The, uh, Coochie tunnels, where uh, the Vietnamese, you know, operated in these uh, in this tunnel system uh, throughout the Vietnam War, and uh, that was fascinating. It was fascinating listening to the tour guides, you know, give the Vietnam the Vietnamese perspective on the Vietnam War, um, which they see as not just America; they see it as French imperialism and so on, which preceded it. And uh, that was that was fascinating. I think uh, you could have gotten a hat or a shirt that said "Kill Americans." There, I probably heard that phrase. You know, a little snow globe that says "Kill Americans." Sure. I think I was. Oh, I probably heard that phrase um, a couple of dozen times um, while I was there. And it was also interesting because you could rent an AK forty-seven and go in. Um, you well, know, sure. They I just mean, there's that. There, guy just sits there and smokes cigarettes. You know, while. While you empty a magazine, you know, into the side of a hill, which I did, which was a lot of fun. And you know what? I didn't even have to sign any release forms, but that was fascinating. Okay. So how about Russia? Russia is different. I've been to Russia. I've only been to Vietnam once, and uh, I've only been in New Zealand once, and I've only been in China once. I've been in, I think, Hong Kong maybe eight times, but I've been in Russia several times. And I have a degree in Russian history. And so uh, Russia fascinated, fascinates me. I was first there right after the, the fall of the, uh, excuse me, the fall of the Soviet Union uh, in the early 90s. And then I've been back several times. And it's been interesting to observe the changes uh, over the course of, uh, of that period of time um, to see the collapse of the Soviet Union an initial openness, um, you're feeling the population embracing freedom to where we are now, you're feeling like it's closing um, again, uh, or has closed, you know, under, under Putin. And um, the Russian people are, the Russian people are a, a little like New Yorkers, that is to say, they're hard on the outside and soft in the middle. Uh, the, the, Russian people, they get you in their homes. They will give you the shirt off their back. Uh, it may have cost them a month's salary to feed you. Wow. Um, they are, they, when you are their guest, they will die for you. Um, they are uh, really, really wonderful, warm um, people. And yet that country has such a brutal history. 
uh, an extraordinarily um, brutal history. I mean, uh, t- take, for example, in World War II, we lost um, our total casualties in that war were about just a little under 400,000 fatalities in, uh, in World War II. The Russians lost roughly 25 million and so you can understand I get a little irritated when they watch Saving Private Ryan because right. they think Private Ryan didn't win the war. We did. We won it at Stalingrad. And they can make a pretty compelling argument that that was the turning point. February 1943 was the turning point of the war. But um, Russia is, is fascinating to me because the political system, the corruption, which is endemic, endemic throughout um, Eastern Europe in Ukraine. We currently have this war. Mm-hmm. An earlier podcast, which you can watch, um, called "Is uh, Is Putin Crazy?" You know, I talk a little bit about this and mm-hmm. Ukraine's history and Russia's history and and so forth. They're both kind of reflections of each other, and that they're both um, quite uh, corrupt. But not now when we're in a war. But if I would encourage people, if you're out there, you get an opportunity, go to Russia. Uh, Russia is a fascinating place um, to go. Moscow and St. Petersburg are two very different cities. Uh, St. Petersburg is deemed to be the more Western mm-hmm. of the two, um, you know, built by Peter the Great in the uh, the 18th century. I prefer Moscow, actually. Really, I prefer Moscow quite a lot um, to um, to St. Petersburg. I love what P.J. O'Rourke, the late, you know, who died, I think, last year. P.J. O'Rourke, you know, <laughs> said of. Uh, He's so humorous. He said of um, St. Petersburg, you know, people call it the Venice of the North, but not very often. <laughs> and, uh, it's, uh, it's such a witty, such a witty remark. And that is because it looks good on postcards until you get up close um, to it. And, uh, and Moscow's a, a vibrant international city. It's, it's a city like Berlin that surprises you maybe, the, or at least did me. The very first time I went to both of those cities, I was expecting a very Russian city and a very German city. Mm-hmm. And and Berlin feels like Paris. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's very cosmopolitan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not like, say, going to Bavaria and to Munich, which is exceedingly German. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's very, very international. You go along the Kurfürstendamm, and uh, you would think you're along the, uh, the Champs-Élysées. So... Uh, Moscow is exceedingly international. Now, I will say, go expecting corruption, go expecting inefficiency. It will not be like the way I just described Shanghai, where the service is extraordinary. Um, Anywhere, Asia, the service is extraordinary. If you stay at a nice hotel in Asia... I don't care. You can choose the the plaza in New York, you know, a very famous hotel in New York. And I've been there many times because when I have to do work in New York, that's usually where they put me. It's supposed to be a treat. I don't want them to hear me say this, but the plaza in New York feels like a Hampton Inn relative, <laughs> right. relative to a nice hotel in, um, you know, in New Delhi or a, uh, a five-star hotel in, uh, you know, in Ho Chi Minh City or in Shanghai or in Hong Kong, where the the service is unbelievable. Russia, you know, you might order tea and you might get vodka. You know, so it's <laughs> it's just <laughs> so it's island time, completely different. Yes, yes, okay. it's uh, you just have to prepare for that. 
Uh, and you have to be prepared for the fact that the the mafia runs almost everything. But it's a fascinating it's a fascinating country, a fascinating history. Again, not touched by the gospel in any real meaningful way. So when we come back, I have two questions for you. All right, stay tuned. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Larry is my favorite player. Welcome back. So last two questions, and knowing you, you may turn these into just one answer, but what makes America great, and how does the gospel affect a country? Well, um, you know, if you, I would put this to Christopher Hitchens, you know, um, the late Christopher Hitchens, the atheist the journalist, that if you accept that human nature is the same the world over, and any intelligent person would, then the question becomes, why isn't America like North Korea, or why isn't Canada like China, although Canada is increasingly becoming like like China? What, what makes one country different from another? And uh, why is there more freedom in one place than there is in another? Why is there more regard for human life in one place than another? Well, the answer is the ideas that are absorbed by a culture. And um, some cultures have absorbed very bad ideas. And the result of that is it, it's, you know, it's exhibited in everything. So for instance, Islamic societies, Islamic states tend to be cookie cutter societies everything from the architecture to the uh, to the to the food laws they're they're the same or or at least um, um, fairly close uh, to one another totalitarian regimes they tend to look pretty much the same the world over and uh, the way uh, religion uh, affects a country is of course huge and there are other factors as I point out like geography and America was blessed with everything we have the best geography in the world we you know there are countries like for instance we were talking about Ukraine earlier or say Belgium their geography they have no natural borders to hide behind mm -hmm. and thus they have been a doormat for invading armies yes. uh, going in one direction or the other throughout their their histories and, uh, and that made development very, very difficult. The United States has two wonderful anti-tank ditches, the Atlantic and the Pacific. Uh, we have had a uh, benevolent um, uh, you know, a neighbor to the north and a, a highly disorganized one to the south. That has generally been a, a very um, a, a positive for the United States. Add to that our natural uh, resources, which are abundant, which are extraordinary. Compare that to, say, Japan, right. which has struggled with space and a lack of natural resources, and that led them into disastrous wars and the the uh, the effort to get both. So, uh, a geography matters, but ideas, um, religion, you know, matters a, a great deal too. And the United States has been deeply, deeply influenced by a Judeo-Christian worldview. Now, I do not argue that the United States is a Christian country. It never has been. There never has been a Christian country. Instead, there are countries that have been, uh, um, to greater or lesser degrees, touched by the Christian faith, touched by that worldview. And our country, up until now, has enjoyed not only a, uh, a robust Christian presence, but largely a, um, a government and a population that, even though they weren't Christian, 
they had been deeply influenced by those ideas. They'd inhaled deeply of them, and they respected them. Mm -hmm. And that was reflected in our laws. That was reflected in our art. It was reflected in our literature. It was reflected in our, you know, in our television. I mean, is the Cosby Show or um, you know Andy Griffith were they Christian shows? Common Grace though ran straight through them. They were evident, you know, in them in a in a very big way. These things, of course, um, are changing, and they're changing rapidly. And so I wrote the book to try to say to people, before you cut your own throat, consider what it is that you're throwing away. And, uh, and so that really is what I was trying to get at. And I, I, I think of a statement made by Lord of the Flies author William Golding. Uh, he didn't say this in Lord of the Flies. I found this, in a, uh, interestingly, in a... Uh, in exchange with his editor, with his publisher, where they had asked him, what is this book about? What's the thesis of this book? What are you trying to, 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 to say in it? And I loved how he said it. He, he said something to the effect of, um, the, the thesis of the book is to demonstrate that the problems of human society are the problems of human nature. So there are those people out there who believe if we get rid of white people, hmm. well, then everything will be good. If we get rid of the Jews, is what Hitler thought, everything will be better. Uh, Stalin, if we get rid of the kulaks, that is to say the wealthy peasants, which is an oxymoron, but anyway, uh, if we get rid of them, that things will be better. Um, there are always, there's always someone who has scapegoated for the problems of human nature. Now, does Christianity make you good? No, Christianity doesn't make you good, but it, it restrains your darker impulses. Uh, Jesus Christ indwell. I love the way Evelyn Waugh, the, the novelist, put it. Uh, he said that um, Christianity didn't make him a good person, but it made him a, a less evil one. And uh, and this is this is true, but there are also ideologies: fascism, Marxism, communism, um, uh, Islam. I would argue that exacerbate our darker impulses. Mm -hmm. It gives me a reason to be more evil rather than less evil. So the Christian faith has, I believe, what I call the the, the grace effect on a society. It has a demonstrable influence on the livability of that society uh, economically, socially, politically, uh, in every respect, and it leads to a freer society. Uh, and when, when the fumes in that tank are gone, totalitarianism isn't far away. Mm. So your book is highly appropriate for the times in which we live. I really would like to encourage our audience to buy the book if you don't have it. If you don't have it, why not? But get it. Uh, it's enlightening. It is insightful. And it's very motivating to understand why we are the way we are, but also why we want to fight to keep our republic. Yeah, I, I think so. And um, it, you know, I think that a lot of Christians, Amy Beth, they believe that their faith is, is important for otherworldly reasons. Like I don't win here, but I, I do go to heaven when I'm forgiven of my sins and I go to heaven when this life is over. Mm -hmm. Well, we of course believe that is true, 
But I don't believe that we as Christians are simply polishing the decks on a sinking ship. I mm. believe that I believe that the Christian faith makes um, sense of the world in which yes. I live. And when I and other people live according to the principles um, that are therein laid out, it it transforms society in a, a very important way. I mean, think about it. If as I experience grace, Inwardly, I begin to demonstrate it outwardly. And that's what the grace effect is. That's that's what changes society in a very big way. So I wanted to show when I was going around the world, yeah, I'm talking about politics and culture and the cuisine. By the way, little travel tip, quickest way to ruin your trip. <laughs> Drink the water. Yes, Montezuma's Revenge. I, I I think that going to a McDonald's is great because you know what you're getting and you're not going to ruin your trip. Eating street food or something like this can ruin your uh, trip oh, in a preach hurry. That. But but I wanted to demonstrate going around the world that those countries that have been most touched by the gospel are the freest societies, and um, they are though they are the societies that are generally have a higher standard of living and, and uh, so forth. And those societies that haven't been are the least free societies are often the poorest um, countries and societies. Now, we are seeing a shift in the West as there is an aggressive attempt to attack God and to remove him um, from uh, public discourse, from public life. And that's what's happening in the United States, happening in Britain, happening in Western Europe. And I promise you when that happens, even the people who are are leading that parade will not like what comes next because what they think that they can kick out the substructure of society, the, 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 the Judeo-Christian worldview, while keeping all the things that it's given to us. And it doesn't work that way. You simply cannot. I love the way what T.S. Eliot said. He said, if Christianity goes, the whole culture goes. Mm -hmm. And that's just a fact. And you know what? We'll end right there because it's true. Um, Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. Uh, You are watching or listening to The Larry Alex Totten Show. We will see you next time. Turn out the lights. The party's over. They say that all. Ladies and gentlemen, we are grateful for the standing ovation, but there will be no encore for today's performance. Please exit the building in an orderly fashion. Thank you. Honey, can we leave now?